0: I was going to uh, begin this morning by reading uh, Revelation 21.1 through 22.5, but in view of our time situation, I'm going to need to pass on that, plus uh, part of it's already been read. So let me just, uh, in essence, summarize this. Now, you should be getting a note sheet. Have those been passed out yet? There aren't any? They're, they're coming. Okay, it's not essential that you have it right this minute, but on the note sheet, there is the full passage written out for you. Now, I did make a few changes because in the text, because if you'll notice in, if you have a New King James Bible, uh, you'll notice that there are some textual problems in this particular portion of Scripture that, uh, that are clarified if you'll look at the bottom of your little notes. Uh, and I changed it according to those notes in a few places just to make for uh, clarity. But uh, that text will be coming in just a moment so let me uh, let me just share with you a little bit about what uh, what this portion of scripture begins to say we 're standing on as we begin in revelation twenty one we 've come through a period of time the first three chapters, really five chapters deal with what will take place on this earth from the time of our Lord uh, through uh, the taking of his church home, which we call the rapture. Following the rapture, beginning in verse or chapter 6 of Revelation, you have, through chapter 19, a period of time called the, the Great Tribulation. It's still future. It will follow the rapture of the church, the taking up of the church to be with the Lord. And during that seven years, we'll be with the Lord wherever he is. Uh, Perhaps suspended in the clouds, Uh, I can't fully fathom exactly what is going to happen, but we will be with him. During the seven years on earth, there will be a tremendous time of of, of horror and persecution and judgment that will be poured out on this earth, which has been the scene of so much evil over so long a period of time. Following that seven-year period, the Lord Jesus Christ in his splendor and with his armies of heaven of which we will be among those who will come with him as his bride. The church will return to this earth, and he will place his feet on the Mount of Olives, and there he will establish a throne. He will establish his kingdom on this earth that we now live for a thousand years. Now, his kingdom will not end, but on this earth it will last for a thousand years And that is the parameters of that is the binding of Satan at the beginning of that thousand years and the release of Satan to lead a a rebellion of people who have actually lived under the blessings of the Messiah and his kingdom, but who have in their heart refused to believe and who refuse to to obey, and therefore they are in rebellion. And uh, we read at the end of the chapter that they rise up and rebel, and uh, following that, the Lord destroys them all. And then we read that the, that there is a throne in heaven and the present heavens and the present earth that we know of flee away. They are destroyed. Now, they're not, God doesn't destroy the matter, I do not believe. What he does is he, there is a disintegration, if you will, fire that consumes this present earth and heavens. And we read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. And following that, uh, there is a, great judgment of all the peoples of the earth that we'll look at some next week in Revelation 20, the last part of the chapter. But then in Revelation 21, we're introduced to a new thought, and that is, as the present heavens and earth were consumed in a ball of fire, God takes this energy mass whatever, and He refashions, reforms it into a new heavens and a new earth. The word new means fresh. New in the sense of remade in an entirely new way. And the next thing we're introduced to in that passage is the, the presence or the coming down of a great city called the Holy City Jerusalem. And is a new Jerusalem. It's not anything like the old Jerusalem. This is a new city that I take has been in existence, and now it is coming down. And the most unusual thing to John is that now it is actually coming down and it is alighting upon the earth, and we read now that God will dwell among men, human beings. And I explained that last week. I don't want to go through and explain it again, get you more confused. That beautiful city in which there will be no more, uh, that beautiful setting in which this city comes down upon the earth, and the people of the earth, there will be no more pain, suffering, crying, and so forth. The... Old things have passed away. All things are new now. That is a focus then that in verse 9 of chapter 21, John picks up and begins to describe. And he describes it as heaven on earth, in which it is a glorious city, in which passes through this very transparent city made of all kinds of special materials that reflect light, the light of God, that this city will cast off a light that will light up in reality the whole universe, overwhelming even the sun and moon or whatever light bodies there may be in existence at that time. He goes on to talk about the city and what it will be like. He says that uh, there will be gates. Names will be written on the gates indicating that there will be freedom to enter into the city. That would speak of the children of Israel, the names of the tribes of Israel. And so there will be freedom of access to these tribes and to whoever they bring in with them, perhaps all the nations of the world. And then there will be also foundations under the wall of the city. And on the foundations will be written the names of the apostles who were the, the ones who were the first victorious, overcoming Christians. And they will possess the city. The name on a foundation sort of suggests the idea of possession, that it will be theirs. The size of the city is given, the dimensions. I personally take it as a as a pyramid. Others take it as a cube. Somebody came out last week and said, I don't know my math very well, that uh, it has to be a cube. I don't know. I guess I don't know my math very well, but I still think by virtue of what it says in Revelation that a pyramid would still work because it doesn't give the actual uh, cubic feet It gives the height, the depth, and the width, and that would fit a pyramid. We read about its beauty in Revelation 21, 18 to uh, to 21. We read about how the Lamb is the light of the city, as I mentioned a moment ago. And we read what goes on there. And let me just uh, reread that to you, which I think is real significant. And the nation shall walk in its light, verse 24, chapter 21, and the nation shall walk in its light, the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. I don't think they're bringing gold and silver. They're bringing in people in praise to the Messiah and to the Lord God. Verse 21, 25, And its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter anything profane, nor one who causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, coming down from the top of this pyramid, I take it, and in the middle of this street and the river running together, on either side of the river was the tree of life. I take it that this would be one tree but one root system, uh, many, many visible trees but one root system tied together, which made it one tree. And it says it will bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And, of course, we found out in our study of the tree of life that fruit was for the purpose of having a superlative experience of life and a relationship or fellowship with the eternal God. But then it says the leaves of the tree, which were, were for the healing of the nations, for the healing of the ethnos, the peoples who lived on the earth in human bodies, like Adam and Eve, they will be healed and will continue to live in those bodies which now will be rejuvenated and they will have truly found the fountain of youth. In Revelation 22, 3-5, "...and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, His name shall be on their foreheads." That is, they belong to Him. They have intimate fellowship with Him. "...there shall be no night there, there shall be no lamp there, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light." Their light to do their work will come from the Lord himself. He shall light the way, so to speak, and they shall reign forever and ever. Great thoughts. Now, the big question we want to ask today is where are we going to be and how will we be involved? And that takes us to our message And so if you would, I believe they're passing out the note sheets, and if you'll turn to the very back sheet, back page, you'll have an outline of the message this morning, which I hope we can finish by noon. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to listen, to be attentive, and to consider these things in a personal way, not to simply to intellectualize and to rationalize these things in our mind, but to realize that these things are written for us Every one of us here needs to think of the truth that we're about to hear in the light of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but it seems that life is a never-ending struggle between what I know God desires and what I desire. And in an effort to finally get my own way, so often I will keep telling myself, So what? What difference does it make? What does it really matter? What difference is it going to make if I have it my way? Just one more time. It's sort of the psychology I use as I'm getting ready to go on a diet. I use it when I'm driving down Elisha, and I'm going past the Walmart section there, and there's a Vons. And in the bonds, there is a Cinnabon. Now, I'll tell you something. When it comes to Cinnabons, I think that's heaven on earth. And it's very difficult for me not to stop. I've even taken different ways home or from wherever I am, so I won't have to go by there. That's the one problem with that new freeway they got through there. It goes through that section. And I say to myself, so what's more? What's a couple more Cinnabons on an already fat, Aging, balding, middle-aged man. Is it really worth it to forsake and deprive myself of that joy? Speaking of aging and balding, this past Friday I was spending some time with Jim Alexander. Now, Jim's an elder. And two times in this day, we were together, somebody came up and asked me if he was my son. Now, if it had happened to somebody else in the church, it had been all right. But this is the kind of friend that gets this information and he won't let go of it. And now Jack knows it. And that's even worse. Seriously, though, one of the saddest things that happened in our ministry was about a year ago, we got a card, one of those visitor cards that people fill out, and there's a place to comment. And the person said they'd been coming to our church for four or five weeks, and they said, we love the preaching, We love the music. We love the fellowship and the warmth of the people, but the pastor is too old. Literally. And he was serious. He or she, whoever. Now, you know, when I heard that, that really hurt. Because I think I'm living in a culture in which as I age and get less attractive, I'm going to be a less desirable commodity. And you know, there's that feeling in your heart when you want to say to God, you know, God, take this job and forget it. I don't need this. But you know, I'm still here. And unless you chose to remove me, it would probably be impossible to get me out of this situation unless I felt God strictly moving me somewhere else to invest my time somewhere else. Why is that? There's other ways to make a living. There's other ways to, to enjoy life. I mean, I really enjoy being a pastor. But there are things about it I don't like. Some of the criticism, the comments, those things really make you mad. To be honest, it gets under your skin. And I'm, people say I'm thick skinned. I'm not any thicker skinned than anybody else here. We're all thin skinned. It hurts. And you get to the point where you just want to say, forget it. I'm leaving. I've got something else I can do with my life. Make some money and, and enjoy life, kick back and forget this nonsense. I don't even have to wear a suit anymore. Is it worth it to keep plugging away? Is it really worth it not to indulge myself and to do what I know is right and proper way to live? Is it worth it to reach out to other people in love and kindness when I just want to be left alone? Is it worth it to tell the sales clerk, knowing they've charged me too much or too little for what I bought, to tell them that they've not given charged me enough? Is it worth it to hold my tongue, which is hard for me to do, when I really want to give someone a piece of my mind? If the truth were known, these are the kind of questions most of us are asking subconsciously. And we're answering them at the same time. Yes or no. It's worth it or it's not worth it. Is it worth it to flee temptation? Is it worth it to show respect to your parents and your teachers as a young person? Is it worth it to remain faithful to your spouse and to care for your family and to keep your marriage together when... You maybe want to go out and have a fling with somebody else you think would be better. Is it worth it to disrupt your family to care for an aging parent? Is it worth it to be honest and upfront in business when so many of your competitors cheat and lie? Is it worth it to risk rejection and embarrassment just to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? Is it worth it to spend your time this morning to come here to church? You could be out at the beach, you could be running down the freeway to do something in San Diego, you could join the other Southern California crowd and have church on the I5 going north. Is it really worth it to be here? Do you think this just makes your week go better? If you think that way, I think you're mistaken. There's no guarantees that your week go better because you go to church. Is it really worth it to listen to the message? Many of you like to put it in neutral sometime along the way and say, I'm shifting out here and I'm going to dream about something that I want to dream about. I want to think about something I want to think about. I don't want to be forced to think about what God thinks about. And if we're talking about something that is interesting to God but not interesting to you or to me, we tune out. Is it worth it to stay tuned in? Is it worth it to spend all your Saturday evening studying and preparing for a Sunday school lesson? Is it worth it to stand up for Christ and live as a Christian in a world that doesn't give a rip? A very old apostle by the name of John knew the value of living for Christ. Turn, if you will, to Revelation 21, and if you have that worksheet, it's right there. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 8. Now, when John wrote Revelation, he was in old age, and he'd been exiled. That's what you do with older people, I guess, as they get older, pastors. He got exiled by the Roman authorities to a tiny island called Patmos. And he was unable to associate with his friends or family, and he was unable to associate with his church friends and his church families that he had been a part of. He knew what it was to live in hardship and to suffer persecution for the name of Christ, and all because he proclaimed Jesus as Lord. They didn't care for that in Rome. Lord was Caesar. Now, as he draws his last book, indeed, God's last book of the Bible, to an exciting conclusion, John sees something that just thrills his soul. And we've read about it this morning. And we've also talked about it. About this new city of Jerusalem, heaven coming down on earth. But it's what he heard from God the Son from his own lips that undoubtedly made this old battle-worn soldier thrill in his heart. Get all excited. And to say to himself, as he heard the Lord Jesus say these words, yes, it is worth it all. Let us share these verses together in Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 to 8, and I think we'll see that yes, it was worth it all. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He begins and he says to me, to John, he being the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the person who sat on the throne. Now, I'll back that up next week right now take my word for it. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to John, it is done. It is as good as done in the sense that from God's perspective, God the Son's perspective, it is done. Why? Verse the middle of the verse, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega are the beginning letter and the end letter of the Greek alphabet, which in which this was written. It's like saying I'm the A and the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. I stand at the beginning of history and I stand at the end of the history. I see it all at the same moment. I determine the end from the beginning. And that's why I can say it's done. Even though it's not done from your perspective, living where you're living, John, it's done from my perspective. Because I see the end. I stand at the end just as much as I stand at the beginning. And only God can reveal and guarantee the destiny of all things. Now, not only is our Lord Jesus Christ guaranteeing and revealing the destiny of these things that we've been reading about, this new heavens and this new earth, but He is also guaranteeing and revealing the the destiny, or if you will, the fortune, good or bad, for all men. This old world in which we live and everything in it will one day pass away. But you know, there's one thing that will go on forever that's on this earth right now that won't be burned up and consumed with the new heavens, new earth. You know what that is? People. People. People forever. You will not cease to exist. You will not be annihilated as popular teachers today from the far east like to tell us or some of our new age people that just sort of think that we somehow die and blend into the spirit the spirit of the natural world that's nonsense there's no credibility for why they say that you can say anything you want and it can sound wonderful but the question is is there anything underneath it and there's nothing underneath the philosophies of men today but there is something behind what i'm sharing you and it's the word of god who stood the test of time People are forever. People will exist forever. And they will all have a part in God's eternal kingdom. But the question is, what part will they have in God's eternal kingdom? In the next two and a half verses, the Lord Jesus Christ spells out in black and white the eternal fortune of three groups of people. Three groups of people... Three different fortunes. And that fortune is described, revealed, and guaranteed by our Lord Jesus Christ, who stands at the beginning and who stands at the end. Now, we tend to class people in different ways. We look at people and we'll say, we have here rich and poor, or we have educated and uneducated, or we have yuppies or mature people, or we have men and women Or we have high class and low class and middle class. Or we have fruits, nuts, and flakes. Which I've said, which I've heard that we have here in California. We tend to class people in different ways. But it's not important how we class people. What's important is how the Lord Jesus Christ classes people. And He classes people from the standpoint of eternity. And the first class or the first group of people are those whose destiny is described in the last part of verse 6. Let's read it together. After he says, I'm the beginning and the end, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now John, of course, put yourself in the position of John. John's written several books in the Bible. He's written the Gospel of John. He wrote the epistles or letters of John. There's the first letter, the second letter, and the third letter. And now we read he's writing the book of Revelation. And we're reading what he's written. So he's very familiar with what he's written, and he's familiar also with what his Lord has taught him. And he knew what kind of people the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking of when he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He's speaking of those who possess the gift of eternal life. And you can write that in there on the blank. He is speaking of those who possess the gift of eternal life. And it is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it, as we'll see in a moment. Undoubtedly, John remembered the story in which Jesus used the same language, the same words, the same concepts. And you probably remember this story, too. It occurred in John 4. There was a woman who was an outcast in Israel, a social outcast, she was by a well. And Jesus was by the same well. And Jesus struck up a conversation with her. And the first way He did it, He says to the woman who was was there drawing her water, He says, Give me a drink. Then the woman said to Him, Sir, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You shouldn't even be talking to me, Jesus. So Jesus turns that into a further revelation, and he says to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now she goes on, and she gets it confused. She's thinking he's talking about living water in the sense that this well will never go dry and she'll always have a fresh supply. But Jesus corrects her. And He goes on to say this in verse 14 of John 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's what He told her. And He went on to lead her to the conclusion that she needed... He told her about the gift, what it is that he offered her, but then he went on to tell her about who it is that she was talking to. And she came to realize that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And she received the gift of eternal life. It was a fountain of water that would continue to satisfy her thirst for life throughout eternity, This was not a gift that would just be for today. It was for all eternity. In other places in the New Testament, particularly in John's Gospel and the words of Jesus, it's called eternal life. Jesus said, truly, truly, when he says that, this is something he says, you can really bank on this. This is a statement you can take to the bank. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting or eternal life. Eternal life is God's life. It's God's life within me. A life which enables us to live with God in His home forever. A life which enables us to lay hold of the opportunities that He's given us in this earth and in the world to come. A life of power. In this verse, in Revelation 21.6, John is reminded that the fountain is still flowing. People will still be drinking, figuratively, from this fountain of life, which is flowing within them. Eternal life will continue to be the possession of all who ask for it through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get it? Jesus said, just ask. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says unto you, give me to drink, you would have asked. Just ask. And He would have given you living water. There's nothing else you can do. Just ask. It's not go out and run five miles and come back. It's not make a commitment to go to church forever. It's not promise to read your Bible or to pray faithfully every day. It's simply now, at this very moment, if you don't have that gift, you ask for it, and He says, I'll give it to you. End of discussion. Simply ask. And your thirst and my thirst will be and have been forever satisfied. No special conditions were attached to the offer. No demands for reform or change. Nothing but a simple offer of a wondrous gift. And that is what Jesus offered this immoral woman of Samaria. And if you went and read this story, you'd see just how immoral she was. She had five husbands. One, of them, the fifth one, wasn't even, even married to him. That was her lover. Now, in this final revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 21, it's still a gift with no conditions. Notice the word freely. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. One other passage of Scripture I'm reminded of is, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The idea of freeness means that this is something we don't deserve. We can't in any way deserve it. There's no reason for God giving it to us. There's no payment. There's no strings attached. It's free. Now the first class or the first group of people were those whose fortune our Lord Jesus describes as those who possess the gift of eternal life. And they will continue to possess that gift throughout all eternity. They will live in that city. They will live in the presence of God. But there is another group of people whose fortune the Lord Jesus Christ describes in the next verse, verse 7, Revelation 21. Like those in the first group of people, these people had also drunk and would continue to drink from the fountain of the water of life freely. In other words, he's building on what's already been said. He's talking about a group within a group, if you will. But these people also used the gift of eternal life, which they possessed, to overcome. Notice verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Use the words of Jesus to his disciples in John's Gospel. Going back to the story of the Samaritan woman, do you recall what happened? She heard that he was the Messiah. She immediately left her water pots and she went into town. She got the people all excited, says, I found the Messiah. They begin to follow her outside of town. In the meantime, Jesus' disciples, who have been off getting food for the, the group, returned. They show up with the food. Jesus sees the crowds probably coming toward him, or senses that they're coming toward him in the distance. And they say, Master, eat. And he says, I don't have time to eat, in essence. And he says, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my meat. Now the woman needed water, and what the disciples needed was the meat. They needed to join in the work. And he goes on and he talks about the fields being white to harvest, and how we need to get busy, and that there will be a reward at the end of the tunnel. They then ate the meat of doing God's will and finishing His work. And we are invited to eat the meat of doing God's will and finishing His work. They overcame and were victorious in the midst of their temptation to be lazy. They reached out in love and kindness even when it was a struggle. We also need to reach out in love and kindness even when it's a struggle. People who overcome are people who are fleeing temptation over and over again. People who overcome are people who put others' before their own needs. Others' needs before their own. They're people who will risk rejection and tell their friends about Jesus Christ. There are people who labor diligently in the ministry God had given to them. Whatever ways you can contribute. I found a a small way in which I can contribute, and believe me, it's small. To come up here and have the opportunity to share the Word once a week, it's a small opportunity with great consequences if people take a hold of the truth. But it's all of God, whatever consequences happen. But my part is simply a small one. But the reason I don't want to run and turn tail, because people get on my nerves or they say things that hurt, or they tell me I'm an old work, an old horse that needs to go out to pasture, is because Jesus Christ has something for me as an overcomer. If I'll turn from that temptation and keep being faithful in the way that I can contribute. Now each one of you have a contribution to make. I don't know what it is. You're gifted in unique ways. And everyone's contribution is uniquely tailored to them. And the question is, are we going to fulfill that, that calling, if you will, that opportunity that God has given us? Are we going to contribute in the way that He wants you and I to contribute? If we do, then we're the overcomer that He's speaking of. You see, the overcomer went to church. I hear people that say, we don't need church. That's just a cop out for laziness. They cop out for selfishness. I want that time to myself. Nonsense. God says they don't forsake themselves together. The the assembling of of themselves together is the manner of some is. That's the test of an overcomer. One of the tests. And when they go to church, they're they're engaged. Their mind isn't a million miles away. It's engaged in what's being said. The overcomer stands for Christ and he lives as a Christian is supposed to live, even when the world makes fun of him. These are the overcomers. There's a lot of talk about the overcomers in John's writings. and We could do a study on that word alone. And they're talked about frequently using other terms. You can go back and study the teaching of Jesus. He talked about the people who lived a life of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, and how they would be rewarded. Jesus talked about those who forfeited their earthly life with its temporary happiness and security so they might be able to preserve the value of their life for eternity. Jesus talked about those who were true disciples, those who took up their cross daily and followed Him. He talked about the overcomers, the victorious ones, the winners with Him in life and the race of life. These are all biblical images, and they're all images of the overcomer. But the question is, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? We're not talking about people here who are saved, who are going to heaven, who are going to be there. If you put your faith in Christ, you're going to be there. But the question is, what's available for you as someone who's laid their life on the line for Jesus Christ beyond just being there? And that's what Jesus is dealing with in verse 7 of chapter 21. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Is it worth it all to be victorious to overcome And he says, oh, yes, it is. Because the one who overcomes shall inherit all things. Go through some time and do a study of inheriting the kingdom versus entering the kingdom. Amazing differences in the passages that talk about the two. Now, we don't have them all together today because we're not theologically precise, and it's it's, it's bad to be theologically precise. This is a careless society. Who gives a rip? Just want to feel Jesus, don't we? But read your Bible and go through it and look at those passages that talk about entering the kingdom of God and inheriting the kingdom of God. And you'll find a a, a wonderful difference between the two. And here we're talking about an inheritance. An inheritance of all things. To inherit something means to enter it and to live there, right? If I inherit my folks' home, they'll they'll give me the privilege of living there. That's what it means to inherit? No. No. If I inherit my folks' home, that means I own the home. And if I want to sell it and take the money and buy 20 Harleys, I can do that. It's mine. Or I can give the money to the missionaries. It's mine. It's my possession. It's something to be granted to me. I'm the owner. I have the opportunity to administer that home to manage that home, to direct that home, to oversee the use of that home because I possess it. And that's exactly what God's saying is here. For the overcomer, there comes the privilege of inheriting the wealth of the world to come. All this that we've been reading about, the heaven on earth and what all this beautiful city is about, this holy city, someone's going to manage that. Now the Lord could manage it, obviously, directly. And we could all just be sitting there and He could feed us too. But that isn't the way it's going to work. He's going to manage it through His servants. And His servants will be those who overcome. He's going to manage it through those who are reigning with Him, using another biblical term. If we endure with Him, we shall reign with Him. He's going to manage it through those who reign with Him. And those who reign with Him will be those who overcome in this life. Now, the children of Israel... You recall the story of the Jews and how they worked so hard to get to the promised land. And what was the the incentive once they got to the promised land? It was the possession of an inheritance. you remember that? Every tribe got a chunk of land cut out for that tribe. And then that tribe would divide up the land among its sub-tribes or sub-families. And then the families would use it in different ways among themselves. Everyone had an inheritance. And that meant it was their land. If they wanted to sit on it, put a chair on it, do nothing with it, they could do that. Or they could manage that inheritance and bring forth a crop and feed their families. Or they might be good stewards and figure out ways of not only feeding their own family, but feeding other families, and they could multiply their financial opportunities. That was their inheritance. Now, we do not receive a, a piece of real estate someday. That's not what he's saying is here. He's saying we have the privilege of possessing something, of inheriting something, which encompasses all of eternity's wealth and privilege. We're co-heirs, if you will, with Jesus Christ. That's a biblical phrase. If we suffer with Him, we will be an heir with Him, a co-heir. You might think of Jesus as as the eldest son. And we're going to be privileged to join in the eldest son's inheritance which in biblical times was significant. All the things the Lord Jesus Christ has made over here in this chapter that we've been reading about, the new heavens and the new earth, the new government, the new city of Jerusalem, a glorious new world full of people sharing their lives with each other and with God in a glorious new way. All of this belongs to the overcomers. Now, because they've proven themselves to be overcomers, our Lord knows that through the power of His Spirit They're going to utilize that inheritance in a wise and good way for the benefit of all. It is theirs to administer. It is theirs to manage. It is theirs to direct. It is theirs to use. These things will belong to them. They will realize not only that I am here in heaven, but all these things are mine. And there's a big difference. Is it worth it? Oh, yes, it's worth it. More than worth it. For no possession on earth can compare to possessing the wealth of the world to come with all of its privileges. It's hard for us self-sufficient Americans, middle-class Americans, driving our Cadillacs and BMWs and motorcycles and things that we do to really appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. here. You know, if we were in poverty, if we were a slave living in the last century in this country, our, our songs will be full of heaven songs. and We'll be thinking a lot more about these things. You see, it's the difference between driving a car and possessing and, and riding in a car. And when I get in a car, let's use a motorcycle, that's better for me. I don't want to ever ride behind anybody else on a motorcycle. I want to drive it. I want to be in control. I want to manage what's happening. I want to know what's going on. Now, if you're foolish enough to ride back there, that's okay. Sorry, Jim. But that's the point. It's the difference between being a passenger or driving the vehicle. It's the difference between living in the home or owning it and running the home. Ask my children. They live there. I run it, along with my wife. Let me illustrate it in a more scriptural way. When God created man, he created us with the capacity and the desire to rule what he created. He put that desire within us to care and manage his world. That's what we really want to do, if the truth be known. To be responsible for what he created. Now, it's obvious that we as men and women have failed miserably. We can't even keep... What we have. We can't even keep our economies in balance, let alone what God has created. But the desire for responsibility has never gone away. In fact, we thrive on responsibility, on accountability, and without it, life simply has no meaning. It's interesting, in recent years, they've found with very elderly people who can't do anything with their bodies, they're more or less immobilized completely. They found that by putting a, a small cat or a dog, in their lap and letting them each day care for that animal, that it does something for them. Because without responsibility, without something to take care of, without someone that's depending on us, without something to do. One sure way to a premature death, I'm convinced, is retirement without responsibility. People ask, what are you going to do? When when are you going to retire? I don't think I'll probably ever retire because I really like what I'm doing. And I appreciate those of you that are in situations which you don't really like what you do. And you're looking for the day that at 65 you can retire. Great! Retire! But don't retire from responsibility. Find something that you're responsible for, and hopefully something that will have eternal benefit. I think of Ridge Ryan, who's here. And every time I call Ridge, he's more busy than I am. More busy than he was when he was pastor of this church. He's leading this back to the bible ministry with uh, Jay Vernon McGee's radio ministry. Great ministry. It's having an impact all over the world. He's the head of it. No, no, I don't know quite how old he is. I won't share that, but he's moving along. But he's responsible. Claude's responsible. Al's responsible. They're involved in this church. Lolita Dale. Lolita comes up to me and she says, I want to be involved. And she wanted to be. She's on our women's council. Doing a great job. In eternity, every Christian will find fulfillment in an environment of responsible love, care, and concern for one another. But for those who have accepted and fulfilled, humanly speaking, their responsibility to live for Christ in this life, they will discover the eternal and infinite joy and satisfaction of being responsible for the wealth and the privileges of eternity and heaven itself. Now think about that. Really think about it. Don't just let this truth pass over you. How could God entrust so much to plain, ordinary folk like you and me? And I'm just as plain as anybody else in this church. Plain, ordinary men and women, boys and girls like you and me. How could God give us such a privilege? Notice the last part of verse 7. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. The word son here is an extremely interesting word. You've probably heard me share this before. But it is so crucial to get a hold of it. It's just so neat what's happening here. The word for son in the Greek language is the word wios, spelled in in, transliterated in English, English, U-I-O-S. But it's pronounced wios. That's a son, Greek word wios. But the word Wios is one of the most interesting words in all of John's writings. Now, keep in mind, when different authors of the Bible wrote, their personality and particular theological jargon worked for them. And there's some differences. As you study Paul, as you study John, as you study Matthew, there's differences in the way they wrote. And that's the beauty of Holy Scripture. Every word that is there is exactly what God wanted there, but he preserved the author's integrity and personality and even his theological understanding, what he was able to grab onto. And in all of John's writings, this word, weos, is a unique word. Now, with Paul, it's not quite as precise, but with John, it was. You see, before in all of John's inspired writings, whenever he used the word weos, or son, he referred, in referring to someone who had a son-like relationship with God, he used it of only one person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was God's son, God's weos, in a unique and spatial sense. And believers and Christians of any kind were called in John's writings, not necessarily in Paul's, but in John's writings, they were called the sons or weos, or pardon me, they were called the technos of God, the children of God. They were never called the weos of God up until this time, up until this passage. This is the last book that John wrote. In John 1.12, the familiar passage that most of us know, where it says, To as many as received Him, that is Jesus Christ, God has given the power to become the children of God. Some translations have sons of God. That's improper. The word there is technos. That's the word for child. God gave us the power to become His children. That is, we have His life now. We become His children, just as your children have your life. However, in eternity, those who overcome, to use Paul's words, who suffer with the Lord Jesus and therefore become joint heirs with Christ, to use John's words, they overcome, and as a result of that way, they will inherit all of eternity's wealth with Christ. And according to Revelation 21, they will be treated as God's weas, God's sons, as sharers and partakers with the son of God himself, with the we us of God himself. They will not be treated as children. How do you treat a child? Versus how do you treat an adult child? A mature child? A mature son. There's a major difference. A child, I'm not about to turn over my, my fortune or whatever money I have to my daughter and son. Gee, Greg and Amy. They're too young. Craig could go out and blow it on motorcycles. Amy had spent all her time at the mall. Pardon me, Amy and Craig. I'm just being facetious. But hopefully, one day, when they grow up and they become mature and they show themselves accountable and responsible and obedient in in the values that I've taught them and that Carolyn's taught them, then they will be entrusted with whatever we've got to leave them. Hoping that they will use it even better than we did. That's the difference between treating someone as a child versus treating them as a mature son, a weos. Because they have not reached the age of accountability, they're called techna, or child. But they will be treated as full-grown sons, or weos, who actually possess the inheritance. Sonship, that mature, responsible relationship which belongs only to those who overcome. We can have the water of life freely. We can live in heaven. But we won't necessarily be treated as mature sons. As the weas of God. Only those who've overcome. Only those who've suffered with Christ. Only those who've denied Him. And denied themselves, that is, and live for Him. They will be treated as mature sons. Able to manage the wealth that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Able to manage His inheritance that they will share in. All who drink of the fountain, the water of life, John called children. But those who are victorious will be called mature sons, weos of God, whom God will entrust all the wealth and privilege of eternity itself. It is to such mature, responsible sons, or weos of God, that the Lord Jesus Christ says that He will make heaven and earth and all creation respond to them because He will be their God. You see, He is the Son, God the Son. And everything will respond to their decisions, to their, their desires, their work, their management, their administration. Is it worth it all? Yeah, it really is. There are two classes of people we've talked about so far. Those who possess eternal life and those who overcome, who also possess eternal life. There's a third class mentioned in verse 8 that we'll look at in detail next week. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the third group of people. And that will be their fortune. These are the people whose character, whose essential character has not been changed. It doesn't mean that a person who commits a sin like that Because Christians can commit sins like this. But it's saying that those whose character has been untouched by the gospel, whose inner lives has not been changed by the gift of God, this is where they go. This is their conclusion. Now there's just one question that we need to ask when you hear words like this, and that is, what's your fortune? What's my fortune? If you're here today and you see that your fortune is that you possess eternal life, but you're not sure that you're an overcomer or that you want to be, you need to study these things carefully. You need to realize that there's something special for you beyond simply being a believer in Jesus Christ. There's something more to be gained than simply walking into heaven and entering it. There's something to be gained in owning it. It's essential to your nature. I know a lot of people say, look, I don't want to work anymore. I just want to relax when I get home to heaven. That harp in the the cloud looks really great. Friends, that would not be great for more than a minute. And then you're going to want to do something. And friends, if you aren't doing something, it's because you didn't do anything here for Christ. Everyone who gives a glass of water in my name will receive a reward in the world to come. So keep that in mind. We're all going to fall short to some extent. Many of us, big time. But there's at least some things we can do. And we will be rewarded with those, with opportunity to do more in the kingdom to come. Then there's the group, the last group. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, you know, that really describes me. Friends, you need to consider these last words of Jesus, about five verses before the end of the book. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Don't leave here today without realizing that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that you know that he is your Savior, your God, who died for you, and that he gives you a gift called eternal life, and you believe that, you will walk out of here today with eternal life. Nothing else has to happen. No prayer, no invitation, no walking forward, no tears, none of the things that we associate with conversion in our culture. Simply a transaction that happens in your heart. That conversion experience really belongs to the next group, the overcomer. At some point, we need to get, as a Christian, we need to get to the point where we say, look, I'm going this way and I'm doing nothing of value for the Lord or little, and I want to turn around and get gone. I want to move out for God, for my Lord, Jesus Christ. And then there may be some weeping, some tears. There may be a need to walk forward and say, I want to recommit my life to Christ. There may be a need to finally stand up and say, you know, I am a Christian. I want the world to know it, and I'm tired of being embarrassed about it. We're going to close with a beautiful hymn today. Take my life and let it be. As we sing a couple verses of that hymn, if you'd like to come forward, meet me at the front of this church, I'll take your hand and we'll pray together. And you can make that as a mark that you're renewing your commitment to Christ, your love for Him and your desire to serve Him. You come as we sing together.